True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 27th case together. I will also confess from the outset, quite possibly the most confusing case that I have ever covered. This case is in fact so big that it's going to be released in three parts over the next three weeks. Firstly though, all the normal business, so if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so please go over to www truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel so please, if you do enjoy the show please spread the word as far as possible. I just want to do a quick plug for all the social media platforms as I want to make sure that everyone can keep up to date with what's going on with the podcast. Also, if there are any issues like the one that some people had with the Sadie Hartley audio, I will keep you updated with it on there. So Twitter is at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. Instagram is at TrueCrimeFix. That's at TrueCrimeFix on Instagram. The Facebook business page is True Crime Fix Podcast or www.facebook.com forward slash True Crime Fix Pod. And the Facebook supporter group slash discussion group is True Crime Fix Discussion. Patreon, if you want to come over and join us, is www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Fix Podcast. I would also like to take this opportunity to welcome Sam into the True Crime Fix Patreon family. Okay, so now I've got that out of the way, let's move on to today's case. I did a video question and answer session through the True Crime Fix discussion page a few months ago, and one of the questions that I was asked during the session was, would I ever consider doing a miscarriage of justice case? or one that was deemed a miscarriage of justice, stroke questionable judgement. My response on that day was I highly doubted it, as the aim of the podcast is to focus on the victim. This case, however, I'm going to allow you to use your own judgement as to whether this case falls under that category. On the other hand, we have to remember the two people who lost their life during this case, 
and have already become a footnote to the circus that is still going on following the tragic events. This is a case that I've always wanted to look into in depth since it happened, so I suppose being a podcast host who can choose my own topics to talk about does have its perks. The more I started looking into this case, I realised that the story, distrust and suspicion was greater than I ever imagined. As this case does have two victims who lost their lives, the show will take a slightly different format to the usual ones, but I will make sure that both victims are given the respect that they deserve throughout. Without further ado, get ready for a story of a trip to paradise that turned into hell. A police force with an abnormal approach potential gangland involvement, a family's fight for justice, a suspect legal trial, and the subsequent aftermath. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in memory of Hannah Witheridge and David Miller. Hannah Victoria Witheridge was born on the 5th of October 1990 in Hemsby in the county of Norfolk, which is on the east coast of England. Her parents were Susan and Tony Witheridge, and she had two sisters, Tanya and Laura, and a brother Paul. Hemsby is a seaside resort, and it is situated about seven and a half miles north of the town of Great Yarmouth. As of the 2011 census, there were 3,275 people residing there, so it is a relatively small town outside of the holiday season. The town used to be a thriving hub for English families, as there were two holiday villages there. But since the last one, Pontins, closed its doors in 2009, the footfall to the town has been less significant. Hannah was described as being fun, vibrant and a beautiful young woman whose family run a handful of the holiday parks when she was younger so the summers were always fun. Growing up, she developed a love of horse riding, performance arts and music. She attended Langley School before studying her A-levels at the City College in Norwich. Hannah graduated from University of East Anglia in 2012 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Education. After that, she worked for a short while as a sales administrator at the marketing firm Archant's head office in Norwich, helping to organise wedding shows. She left in 2013 and moved to Colchester to study speech and language therapy at the University of Essex. Her mother Susan said, Hannah was a beautiful, intelligent, loving young woman who poured joy into the lives of all that knew her. She was selfless and caring and made each and every day that little bit more wonderful. In 2014, between her university terms, Hannah decided that she wanted to go travelling and, against her parents' wishes, book tickets to Thailand. Susan said, The family had always been against Hannah going on the trip and tried to persuade her out of it. 
none of the family was happy with her going there, but she had made up her mind. Hannah tried to relax her family's fears by talking to them on Skype or by sending them messages every day. These messages were filled with her exploits in this far away exotic country. For example, she had been on a cookery course in the streets of Bangkok and gone trekking around Thailand, fulfilling the dreams of any young person with a wanderlust. Hannah's itinerary round Thailand took her to the island of Koh Tao on the 11th of September 2014. Koh Tao means Turtle Island in Thai. It's a small island which is about 90 minute boat ride north of Koh Samoy and offered travellers the best dive sites in the Gulf of Thailand. With the clear seas and the stunning bays, the underwater world that you could only be able normally to see on documentaries was brought to life. Koh Tao is a highly popular stop on the backpacker trail. Located right next to Koh Pang Yang, the home of the notorious hedonistic full moon party, many backpackers arrived on Koh Tao, bleary-eyed and hungover, ready to chill out for a few days. But they didn't end up chilling out for too long, as Koh Tao had its own personality. Hannah checked into her hotel, the Ocean View Bungalows, which was a small backpacker complex overlooking the white sandy beaches of Syri Beach. The accommodation was cheap, but it was within a couple of miles of everything that Koh Tao had to offer. While she was there, she met David Miller following one of these infamous full moon parties. Just to clarify, a full moon party does exactly what it says it does. It's a party on the beach hosted on the night before or the night of a full moon, and it is a must attend for anyone who is backpacking. When you are backpacking, it is common to meet up with people in various cities around the world, especially in Southeast Asia, who have similar travel plans. You therefore gain a larger group, sharing things like travel costs and getting larger dormitories in hostels. David Miller's group and Hannah Witheridge's group were staying in adjacent rooms. David William Miller was born on the 21st of May 1990 in St. Hillier on the island of Jersey in the English Channel. His mother was Susan Miller and his father was Ian Miller and he also had a brother called Michael. Jersey is the largest of the Channel Islands which are between England and France. A self-governing dependency of the United Kingdom, these islands are a mix of French and British cultures and Jersey is best known for its beaches, cliffside trails, inland valleys and historic castles. David attended Victoria College which was a fee-paying state school before graduating and studying civil and structural engineering at Leeds University in Yorkshire. In the summer of 2014, he completed a six-week placement at a mining company, Consolidated Minerals in Australia, a company who he worked for the Jersey branch. He then decided that he was going to go backpacking around Asia. He was planning on returning home to finish his master's degree back in Leeds. His family recalled 
David was an artist by temperament, so talented. He had a creative eye that he carried with him throughout his life and in his degree. He was hard-working, bright and conscientious, with everything to look forward to. He was in a relationship with Jesse Howarth before departing for Australia. On the evening of the 14th of September 2014, the two groups decided to go and socialise in a few local bars. Their first visit was to a bar called Chopper's Sports Bar, approximately one mile from their hotel. At about midnight, Hannah and her friends made their way back towards the hotel, calling in at the AC bar on the way. David then rejoined them about two hours later. Shortly after his arrival, Hannah and David decided to make their way the 300 metres back to the Ocean View Hotel. Early the following morning, a local hotel owner, Montrewat Tuvechian, was woken by one of his Burmese employees' panicked shouts. He recalled, My worker was in shock and panicking. She quickly ran up to my room and woke me up. I came down together with my worker and saw the dead bodies over by the rock. I was the first Thai who saw the dead bodies. At 6.30am, the first police officers arrived on the scene and they formally recorded the discovery of two bodies by the rocks 30 metres from the entry of the Ocean View bungalows on Syri Beach. They were that close to home. Hannah Witheridge's body was found on the beach with severe head wounds. 12 metres away from her was David Miller's body, face down in the shallow sea. He too had head wounds. Both were found with some clothes removed and it appeared as though Hannah had been raped. Next to the bodies, a garden tool, a hoe, was found and it was covered in blood. Sergeant Chegoa was one of the first on the scene and he recalled When I arrived on the scene I was taken aback by what I saw Personally I feel it was just too violent This area is surrounded by temples I hoped that God would punish the person who committed these crimes There were issues with the police investigation from the start because of the size of the island. Kotal is 13 square miles, so there were only six police staff on the island. This meant that there was a delay in getting the scene secure and the collection of evidence. From the start, the terrain was not helpful to the police. David's body was found in the water, as I mentioned previously so if there was any of the killer's DNA on his body, it would have washed away. Secondly, there was tidal movement. Had anything important been washed away between the time that David and Hannah were killed and the time that they were discovered? The police staff on the island did not have any form of training in controlling the boundaries of a crime scene either. So strangers were wandering along the beach and through the crime scene meaning that they were at risk of contaminating anything that was in the sand. 
local bystanders were also not respecting the makeshift cordon, taking pictures of both Hannah and David's bodies and posting them on social media. The police from the mainland arrived in Kotao by 11am and their first step was to close down all the piers on the island to prevent the suspect from fleeing the area. I believe that the perpetrator is still on the island, said Police Major General Kitiapong Kosamyang, a commander of the Suratani Police. On the 16th of September, the day after the bodies had been found, the police revealed that they had identified three suspects but did not reveal their nationalities. The media, who were following the case on the other hand, were not so courteous. The first theory that the police were looking into was a Thai man who had allegedly had an altercation with David in the AC bar the night stroke morning that he was murdered. Did this argument continue onto the beach, resulting in murder? The second person that the police were investigating was British backpacker Christopher Ware, who was in David's travelling party. The theory that they were working on here was the scenario that an argument had broken out over romantic advances and had been rejected by Hannah. A police spokesman said that David and Hannah's bodies had now been moved from the island and they were due to arrive in the capital Bangkok later that day for forensic testing and the autopsy. The further that the world's media was diving into this story, the more stories of foreign nationals being killed in suspicious circumstances in Thailand were coming out. In 2000, 23-year-old Kirsty Jones was raped and murdered at her accommodation in Chiang Mai. In 2006, 21-year-old British tourist Catherine Horton was raped and murdered on Koh Samoy. Then, in 2013, a 51-year-old American was stabbed to death in another popular tourist city, Krabi. A few weeks before that, another American tourist had been slashed to death by a taxi driver in Bangkok in an argument over a fare. On Koh Tao as well, there was the story of Nick Pearson, who was a 25-year-old and was found floating in a bay at the bottom of a 50-foot cliff on New Year's Day 2014. The police ruled out foul play, but the family are still fighting that to this day. The issue was that despite the fact that he was supposed to have fallen from the top of a 50-foot cliff face, which, just to clarify, had rocks and stones all the way down, there were no broken bones or injuries such as abrasions consistent with a fall. I'm just going to let that register. David and Hannah made it three British tourists to have died on the island in nine months and unfortunately they were not the last. But that is a point that I'll revisit later in this story. At a cabinet meeting, the new Thai Prime Minister, General Prayat Chanochan, told the police to speed up the investigation as the incident had tarnished Thailand's tourist image. 
a day later, on the 17th of September, with the words of the Thai Prime Minister still ringing in their ears, the investigation team reported that a used condom had been found near the murder scene. Before I go on, I just need to explain something to give it a little bit of context. Myanmar is a Southeast Asian country which borders India, Bangladesh, China and Thailand. Myanmar will be better known to most listeners by the name Burma. The name had been changed in 1989 following a military uprising. Burma was also a former British colony under the old Commonwealth and the name change was also designed to create the nation's own identity. A lot of my wife's ancestors came from the former capital Rangoon. Despite the fact that Myanmar is relatively large in size and rich with natural resources, the economy is one of the poorest developed in the world, with about a quarter of its population of over 53 million people living in poverty. To this date, the country's political climate is still not settled. As a result, the Burmese nationals would migrate to Thailand's popular tourist areas and work in the less than desirable manual jobs and were considered cheap labour even by Southeast Asian standards. Therefore, the attitude of the Thai people to the Burmese migrants was one of slaves and never being their equal. A trait that unfortunately still exists in a lot of better developed countries to this day. The BBC reported that the Thai police were rounding up groups of migrant workers who were on a local fishing boat and working in surrounding hotels to interrogate them. The reporter Jonathan Head stated that a senior police official had told him that they were doing this because the general consensus was that they couldn't believe a Thai could do such a thing. That is a direct quote, ladies and gentlemen. That evening, Police Major Kiatapong announced that they had detained one of David's friends as he had provided conflicting information to the police. Also, there were multiple scratches on his body and what was described as a serious wound on his hand. Major Kiatapong also said that there was CCTV footage of an Asian man running from the direction of Ocean View bungalows at 3am. He said that the police believed that he could possibly have been a migrant worker or a fishing trawler crewman. The police announced that they had arrested British backpacker Christopher Allen Veer after he was seen walking around near the crime scene with a bloodstain on his clothes. He had caught the ferry back to the mainland the following day. The police were waiting on a DNA test on his clothing to confirm whether the blood was from either of the victims. General Kiatapong also revealed that they collected DNA samples from some suspected migrant workers who were living near the scene for testing. The post-mortem took place on the 17th of September in Police College Hospital. Forensic Police Chief 
Hornchai Suit Girakun told reporters. Hannah had suffered deep cuts to her head whilst David had been beaten over the head. Water was found in his lungs, suggesting that he had died from drowning. Bruising was also on David's knuckles and cuts on his hands, indicating that he had tried to fight off his attacker. The cuts showed that he had been attacked with a sharp object, possibly a rock. As I mentioned earlier, also David's body was found in the sea, so no DNA would be found on his body. Further tests were being conducted on the trace evidence which was found on Hannah's body. Traces of semen as well as a blonde hair were found in her hand. 24 hours later, the Royal Thai Police declared that all of David Miller's travelling party had been asked to stay on the island whilst they waited for the results of the DNA tests, testing the party against the DNA found on Hannah's body. Late on the 18th of September, the police announced that they were releasing six migrant workers whom they were holding, as well as Christopher Ware, the man who'd been arrested in David's travelling party. The wounds on his body were from one of the hedonistic full moon parties and he was ruled out from the investigation. The police also released Christopher Allenvere, but the exoneration was not so final for him as the investigators believed that there was more behind the bloody clothes. The families of both David and Hannah arrived in Bangkok on the 18th of September. In the early hours of the morning of the 19th of September, Thai police conducted a two-hour reconstruction, taking into account what the known events of the morning of the 15th of September were, trying to pinpoint the time of death. The reenactment was supervised by the office of the Royal Thai Police Commissioner, the highest force in the country. They hoped that the reenactment may jog the memory of any witnesses as well as eliminate or incriminate the person seen on CCTV fleeing in the early hours from the beach. The police announced that a cigarette butt found close to the crime scene had DNA on it which matched the DNA of the semen found on Hannah's body. Police said they wanted to locate three men, again assumed to be Burmese, who were seen playing an acoustic guitar on the beach by where the bodies were found. By the 23rd of September, the police's attention had again changed, this time to a speedboat driver who was arrested on drug charges and they sent his DNA away to be tested due to the route that he ran between Koh Samoy and Koh Tao and it would have put him in the vicinity of the area of the murder. Once again though, the test came back negative. Over a hundred of the country's investigators were now involved in the hunt. What with the pressure from the British media alleging a bungled investigation they were now receiving pressure from the country's tourism council. Thailand as a nation was still reeling from a military coup themselves. The Royal Thai Army had launched a coup d'etat 
on the sitting Prime Minister Yingluck on the 22nd of May 2014. The unrest had already had an effect on tourism and with this unsolved murder, economists projected a loss of 0.1 trillion baht or 2.47 billion pounds. On the 24th of September, the police divulged yet another suspect. Varot Tuvekian was the 22-year-old son of an influential figure on the island of Koh Tao, who had apparently fled to Thailand's capital city Bangkok. A 1 million baht reward was offered for information which led to the conviction in this case. On the 30th of September, the results of the tests on the condom found near the body came back. The results were that Hannah's DNA was on the outside, confirming that it had been used, but there was no DNA on the inside. The lead on Varat Tuvekian also appeared to go cold as well, when he held a press conference with his lawyer, Atakorn Onart, to show CCTV evidence that he was in Bangkok. So just a quick recap, one of the biggest flaws of the investigation was that investigators wasted a lot of precious time by initially focusing their efforts on interrogating migrant workers and combing through their accommodations, a move which if you look at the evidence and explanations given in this episode could be considered down to racial bias. The other flaw perhaps was the most vital one, the police force's unsophisticated forensic technology and carelessness at the crime scene. Later, the shift in focus from a migrant worker to tourists and then Thai residents, including bar owners and their staff, also proved to be fruitless, turning up no new substantial clues or leads. The investigation felt as if the police were throwing a lot of things against a wall and seeing what stuck without any significant evidence. Now the police were under extra pressure as the international media had started attacking them for what they called aimless efforts that turned up no clues after nearly two weeks since the killings. Giving the police their due, and not to sound as if I'm completely tearing apart the processes, some of these setbacks in the initial investigation, however, cannot be solely blamed on the police. For instance, daily high and low tides have been washing away evidence on the beach and investigation personnel losing time whilst trying to get to the remote island were major issues. The fact that David was in the water, meaning that any leads on his body had been washed away. Also, before local police officers arrived at the crime scene at dawn on September the 15th, many locals had already tampered with evidence by moving the two suspected murder weapons, the garden hoe and the wooden stick, thereby causing any fingerprints on them to be compromised. The key things that the police needed to do now was find the people whose DNA had been discovered on the cigarette butts and looking to see if they had any links to the murders. Then there was Hannah's missing mobile phone. The last photo of the two victims at the chopper's bar 
on the table there appears to be an iPhone with a purple casing in front of Hannah. Thai police coordinated with her family in the United Kingdom to get the phone's registration details and they tried to see if they could unearth any relevant clues. In addition to this, the Thai Institute of Forensic Medicine's inability to verify the DNA, which would narrow down the suspect pool by hair and skin colour. On the 1st of October, however, Police Lieutenant General Panya of the Royal Thai Police announced that they had been interrogating 10 witnesses. As a result, they now had enough information to issue an arrest warrant for the suspect or suspects in the investigation. The two people arrested were both Burmese migrants. On the 3rd of October, surrounded by the world's media and 200 plain-clothed police officers dressed in riot gear, the two suspects were paraded round the beach doing another reconstruction. The pair were part of the group of three men with a guitar that the police said they were looking out for at the start of the investigation. The two men had reportedly confessed to the police and their movements had been backed up by CCTV. The arrests, however, were met with some scepticism and accusations were levelled at the police that the two migrant workers were scapegoats. The arrest came after police obtained an image captured by a CCTV camera in a 7-Eleven convenience store showing that three men entering and purchasing cigarettes and alcohol and then proceeding to a log on the beach close to the actual crime scene. The L&M branded cigarette which one of the suspects purchased was the same brand of cigarette as the butts that the forensic police had collected from the scene. The DNA test of the cigarette butts matched the DNA found on Hannah's body. Upon being arrested, these two men admitted to sitting on the log, consuming alcohol and playing guitar, but denied having any involvement in the murders. Police officers then led the two to a safe house where they were intensively interrogated. While this was going on, another team of police officers arrested a third man at the Surat Tunai Municipal Pier after it was discovered that he had boarded a boat and left Kotal the night before. He was escorted to the 8th Regional Police Headquarters in the city of Phuket for questioning. Comparing his features to the images captured on the CCTV, police were able to ascertain that he was one of the three men in the footage. He had recently dyed his hair black, when originally his hair was dyed blonde. As mentioned earlier, some strands of blonde hair were found at the scene and were kept as evidence. The police sent his DNA to test to confirm their case. Later in the day, Police Lieutenant General Chai Chinda, the acting Royal Thai Police Deputy Commissioner, revealed that the three men had admitted to having committed the crime. Meanwhile, the acting Assistant Commissioner of the Royal Thai Police, Police Lieutenant General Panya, 
identified three Myanmar workers to the media. Mo Mo, Wei Fayo and Zor Lin. Mo Mo was released pretty much straight away, while the other two were arrested on immigration charges. And it was then that Wei Fayo had first admitted the crime. On the night of the incident, Wei Fayo revealed that he and his two accomplices had been drinking and singing songs and playing a guitar approximately 65 metres from the murder scene. They sang songs in the Yakai dialect, which is native to the Arakan region of Myanmar, to the west of the country on the border with Bangladesh. This information tallied with eyewitness accounts that on the night of the murder, some people had seen Burmese men playing the guitar and singing at that spot. All of the eyewitnesses stated that the songs were neither in Thai nor Burmese language and no one could make out the dialect. After a tip-off from an Arcanese waiter who worked at a bungalow nearby, the police then started to covertly follow the group's movements. Wei Fayo, in his confession, said that he had seen the two British tourists walking towards the cluster of rocky reefs and were romantically embracing and cuddling each other. Wei Fayo stated that he was curious and grabbed a garden hoe and went to sneak a peek of the couple making out. He admitted to being sexually aroused and along with his two accomplices had used the garden hoe to beat David and then dumped his body in the sea. They then proceeded to rape Hannah and finally killed her by hitting her with the same garden hoe. They then disposed of the murder weapon which was later found by the police. Police collected the DNA samples of all three men and sent them off to confirm their story. The commissioner of the Royal Thai Police flew to Koh Tao later in the day to personally question the men and following that formal charges were filed against them. Back at home on the 3rd of October 2014 the funeral of David Miller took place in his native Jersey. The funeral was preceded by a memorial service at Holy Trinity Church attended by family and friends. They all pay tribute to the man with such a colourful character, a man of life, energy and vitality, and sung hymns during the afternoon before the family held a private funeral ceremony elsewhere. David was carried in a wicker coffin adorned with sunflowers. The memorial service led by Reverend Ian Pallant also included a performance of Bob Dylan's song Forever Young. On the 4th of October, Zorlin and Wei Fayo were both charged by the Royal Thai Police with three offences, conspiracy to murder, conspiracy to rape and robbery. On Friday the 10th of October, the sun shone brightly over Hannah's home village on an unseasonably warm day in Hemsby as about 200 brightly dressed mourners filed into St Mary's Church. The large crowds gathered on the street opposite as the funeral started. 
mourners were asked to dress as though they were attending a wedding for what one guest called the celebration of Hannah's life. The family requested a police horse led the procession because of Hannah's love of animals. It was followed by four white horses adorned with plumes of purple feathers and pulling a white carriage containing her coffin. Her mother Sue walked alongside Hannah's sisters who were all wearing floral head garlands together with her father Tony and brother Paul. A handful of close friends followed behind as silence fell on the streets. During the service, Hannah's father Tony, sisters Tanya and Laura, and brother Paul all gave readings, with the Reverend Charles Powell's inviting the congregation to join in with prayers. A tribute video of Hannah was played and mourners heard live music by Bill Downs and songs by artists John Legend, Cindy Lauper, One Direction and Ed Sheeran. A loud applause erupted as the coffin was led out to She's So Lovely by Scouting for Girls. A private burial took place behind the church with a marquee erected to ensure the privacy of the family. And that is as good a place as any to end this first part. I'll release part two on Tuesday on Patreon and then on Friday on the regular feed. This case needs a second episode to do what is going to follow justice. You have the trial and the controversy which came with that, plus, as promised earlier, all of the other suspicious deaths which have taken place on Kotal. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at TrueCrimeFixPod, that's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, and there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the new website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also remember that the podcast is now on Patreon, So please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search true crime fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what may be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.